Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last week, I sat down with Cliff Asnes, the co-founder and chief investment officer of AQR Capital Management, one of the biggest quant fund managers in the world. Cliff Asnes, welcome to Money Talks. Thank you for having me. His firm makes investment decisions using data, algorithms, and quantitative models that try to eliminate bad decisions that arise from human emotion or biases. Investors have entrusted AQR with about $100 billion in assets to manage using those principles. Instead of picking stocks based on, say, what a CEO is planning, the algorithms his firm has built look for patterns in valuations or other metrics in search of what quants call signals. These signals form the basis of their investment decisions. The firm was launched 25 years ago to follow this quantitative rather than qualitative approach to investing. We spent an embarrassingly large amount of time trying to come up with the name. I love it for a very simple reason. Applied quantitative research, AQR, is exactly what we do. The timing could not have been worse. In the midst of a frenzy like the dot-com boom, Machines trained on decades' worth of long-term data on the performance of stock markets did a poor job of predicting which share prices would go up. For the next 18 months, the internet bubble began and the markets completely decoupled from fundamentals and our assets went from a billion dollars through performance and redemptions to $438 million. But they stuck with their strategy, even through those difficult times. We want to be at the nexus of the integration of technology data, economics, and statistics, and how we value securities put portfolios together. And holding on paid off. AQR posted huge returns in the years following the dot-com boom. And now, history looks like it might have repeated itself. AQR struggled in 2019 and during the heart of the pandemic. But starting in 2021, its investments have come roaring back to life. In 2022, its flagship fund soared by 43.5% net of fees, even as the stock market plunged by a fifth. Cliff Asness had its best year ever at a dozen funds last year, at one dozen funds. And part of that was because they were following things like value. What does the king of quants think about why financial markets move and where they might go next? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, we sit down with Cliff Asnes. He tells us why his company is unusually open about what they do. We actually occasionally have a kind of come to Jesus discussion. Can we really write about this? 
we're probably a little biased to say yes, because again, we like being part of that world. He criticizes social media's role in creating speculative bubbles. Getting information and getting it quickly does not mean processing it well. In fact, it can create an illusion of safety, an illusion of control, an illusion of knowledge. And we find out what keeps a quant up at night. I will have crises of confidence where I will wake up in the middle of the night and say, maybe we've just gotten lucky over the last 20-something years. Tom, Mike, hello. Hey, Alice. Hey, Alice. Have you been up to anything interesting this week? Well, I've been closely following the news on Disney this week. We had a cover story on the company a few weeks ago. Since then, they've announced that they're laying off 7,000 staff and reducing their costs by $5.5 billion. So back in the headlines again. And what about you, Mike? Yeah, it's been a all change at the Bank of Japan this week. I've been paying a lot of attention to that. After 10 years at the helm, Haruhiko Kuroda is on the way out. And Kazuo Ueda is on the way in. And yeah, really interesting. He was a bit of a, a sort of a non-entity. He was not on any of the shortlists. Came as a big surprise. There was one American asset manager who titled the research note, Who, when he was announced. Yeah, yeah. But that's what I've been preoccupied with this week. So you must have had a pretty fun week. You've been on what I imagine for you as a hedge fund geek was a bit of a pilgrimage. Yes. uh, Yeah. Towards the end of last week, I traveled up to Greenwich, Connecticut to the headquarters of AQR, which is this sort of massive quantitative fund run by Cliff Asnes. And in keeping with the idea being it's something of a pilgrimage, the building that they're actually housed in is precisely what you would expect. So people often think of quantitative funds being these big black boxes because no one knows what goes on inside. And AQR is housed literally in a giant black brownish glass box that looms over Greenwich train station. But inside this sort of literal big glass box, there are not just hundreds of machines wearing away. There is more of an academic vibe with lots of studious people looking at charts. So you've been to your mecca, your lords. For those of us a little bit less zealous, give us a breakdown. What sets these quant funds like AQR apart from other hedge funds like Tiger Global or even other famous investment firms like Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, which makes its money picking stocks as well? So a lot of traditional hedge funds or investors use a combination of qualitative techniques. So they might talk to management or the CEO, they might analyse the economy and pick out big industry trends like, say, the rise of online shopping or the disruption of traditional media businesses. And they will use that analysis to sort of pick companies that they like and think will do well and others that they do not like. So Chase Coleman of Tiger describes his strategy succinctly as buy the best, short the worst. Quants like AQR do something quite different. So they tend to hire people with economics PhDs or computer science backgrounds, some of whom might never have thought of having a career in finance, and task them with building models that consume the vast amounts of data. That includes data on the fundamental value of a firm, like its book value or its profits or sales, and data on price action, so whether its share price has been rising more quickly or slowly than its peers. And they use all this data to create predictions, or what the quant guys call signals, about which firm's share prices or other assets like currencies might outperform. 
For stocks, there are some well-known so-called factors that AQR uses. So one of these is value, which is looking for stocks that look cheap based on some fundamental measure of value, like looking at the book value of a firm, which is what it would be worth if it were liquidated. The term value in particular tends to come up a lot at the moment when you speak to people like Cliff. Another factor quants look for is quality, so stocks that are consistently growing or profitable. Uh, a third is momentum, which is the tendency of winning stocks that have been rising or outperforming the overall market to keep winning. So often a firm like AQR will try to use these factors in concert with one another. So their ideal stock would be one that looks relatively cheap, is consistently profitable and has been rising in price. Funnily enough, actually, uh, even though Warren Buffett is not at all a quant, AQR actually modelled his portfolio and found that he owned firms that would have been picked up by some of those same factors like value and quality. Uh, He also likes those kinds of companies. I have to admit that pretty much everything I know about hedge funds comes from the show Billions, which I'm sure is a very authoritative source on the topic. Uh, But what you're describing, Alice, sounds a little different and a lot more whizzy than that. So why did you want to speak to AQR in particular? Well, one reason is that I just thought it might be quite fun to have a chat with Cliff Asnes. He's quite the character. He gets into the sort of occasional Twitter fight with a retail trader or other investors. He writes research papers with gag names like Size Matters If You Control Your Junk. But more importantly, I think the quant approach to investing is fascinating. And a lot of the quant funds like Renaissance Technologies, you know, they would never talk to me about their strategies. They're famously secretive. For proof, you know, listeners should just try Googling the RedTech website. There is literally nothing, nothing there. And uh, AQR is pretty different. They produce a lot of research. They talk about it. And that is partly because Cliff and the other co-founders of AQR started out in academia. So he completed his PhD at the University of Chicago, where he was a teaching assistant to two academics, Eugene Farmer, giant of academic finance, who is credited with coming up with the efficient market hypothesis, which argues that markets accurately reflect present information about securities. And also Kenneth French, who worked with Professor Farmer to devise this factor model that we touched upon that Cliff has put into practice at AQR. And Cliff Astos was really sort of a front runner in actually applying these factors to a real portfolio. And he's been hugely successful with that approach. There are now a massive number of funds who deploy similar strategies. But that's probably enough from us. Shall we hear what happened when I sat down with the man himself? I think we should. Let's. I'm very excited to be here in your office. I notice it's adorned with all of the best academic paper awards, but I'm thrilled to be here with you in person. There are a lot of pictures of my kids also. <laughs> it's not just awards. There are, actually. I've clocked them now. So if we could start off just with a little bit about who you are and how you came to build AQR. So the sort of major plot points of your career, I sort of pretty well familiar with. So you, you studied undergraduate finance and computer science at, at UPenn. Then you went to UChicago to do your PhD under Gene Farmer in the late 80s, moved to Goldman, and then you founded AQR in, in 1998. Could we skip back to the very beginning? And when do you think you first started on the path that led you to quantitative finance? Was it your interest in computers as a young person? And when did that fuse with an interest in finance? I didn't think of it as, as finance, but for my 13th birthday, I got an early computer. And I'm old now, so people have to try to visualize this. This is black and white Radio Shack TRS-80, it was called. The resolution of the screen, which I programmed in it, so I'll always remember, 
was 127 by 47, which means they're big blocks. It didn't look like today. And it did not have a disk drive. It had a cassette drive. You put a cassette in with a program and you played it and it took about seven minutes till the program would work. So I was always into computers. I was always at least somewhat of a math kid. But I was kind of an aimless high school student. And my dad found this program at Penn that studied, and you mentioned it, both uh, engineering and business. And he said, well, you're kind of mathy. You have no idea what you want to do. Why don't you study two things that are mathy, and you'll figure it out later? And I, being aimless, said, that sounds reasonable. And I never visited it till after I got in. Yeah, one thing led to another. You went to do your PhD with Gene Farmer. He obviously is a giant of academic finance. What did he think about you choosing to go into the business rather than being an academic as well? Uh, he didn't like it at all. For many years afterwards, I would tell the story, and it was a true story, that had to be 15, 20 mutual friends would say something to me. This is probably in the 10 years after I decided to go, you know, Gene's kind of mad at you for not being a professor. And every single time I would react, because I care a lot about what Gene thinks, I still do, I'd be like, oh, God. And they'd always go, no, 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 not really. And I'm like, I, I got to tell this story at his 65th birthday that Gene trained me to be too good of an empiricist to have 20 people tell me the same story and really believe them all when they go, no, no, no. I always took it as coming from a good place. He thought I'd be a decent academic. He wanted to see me do that. So it was a compliment in that sense, but I, but I definitely disappointed him going to Goldman Sachs. And so after you did your PhD and chose to go into the business, you were sort of very successful in your sort of early endeavors at Goldman Sachs, and you founded AQR in 1998. And there were a few other funds doing quantitative investing at the time, but they were and still are famed for their secrecy. So there appears to be something of a philosophical difference between how you do what you do and how they do, because you're much more opening about your principles, what you're doing. You publish a lot of research. You occasionally deign to take a podcast uh, interview with a journalist. So why did you make the choice to operate more in the open? Uh, first of all, it's, it's extremely generous that you refer to it as a choice. Something's just happened. And years later, you look back and you go, I'm pretty happy it happened that way. But I don't think there was a day where we, we, we planted a flag and said, we're going to do this. Three of the four founders of AQR met in the PhD program at the University of Chicago. We always had, as part of an economy here, our consumption function was writing and reading and participating in the academic dialogue. It sounds corny these days, but we just enjoy that. We actually occasionally have a kind of, you know, come to Jesus discussion. Can we really write about this? And, you know, we're probably a little biased to say yes, because, again, we like being part of that world. There's some real benefits to being part of that world, too. We get to interact with academics on a very different level when you're a producer, not just a consumer of research. But we also do some things here we absolutely would not write about. So I think the distinction may be a little smaller than it sounds. So one of the points you've made in your research is that an error investors tend to make is that a lot of people think intuitively that they should just put all of their money in equities. Uh, that's the best bet. Why is that intuition wrong? Why does diversification matter? And why do people tend not to do quite enough of it? There are a few things. I probably first leapt into this by responding to a Journal of Portfolio Management article back in the early 90s. 
And it was essentially that. It was long-term investors should be 100% in equities. And I said, well, what do they teach us kind of third week of finance class? They draw this thing. Now, your listeners do not know I'm currently drawing an efficient frontier on my hand. (laughs) They tell us you should own the best portfolio of risky assets, and both stocks and bonds have some risk. And you should either gear it up or down by adding cash. But you should always work from that best portfolio. And the gearing is to determine your risk level. And then in real life, people don't seem to do that. If they're aggressive, they buy all equities. And if they're conservative, they buy all bonds. If you take a diversified portfolio, call it 60-40, and lever it to approximate equal risk to equities long term, because it's less risky alone, you do get, in fact, about the same risk of equities, and you outperform it, because you're harnessing the power of diversification. You basically have a better portfolio for the risk taken. A broader question you asked is, why do people undervalue diversification in general? And that's hard to answer when someone says, why do people miss like the most important thing in portfolio construction? Uh, first of all, not everyone does, of course, and certainly not unique to, to us. But I think it is inherently behavioral. Now, you get a lot of stories that if we invested with this manager and he called the commodities boom of 2022 right and we made 112%. But we invested with this Russia manager, and he lost all the money. Those are interesting stories. I do think it leaves, uh, again, not just AQR, but the collective we with an opportunity. Because I still think, you know, it's a cliche to say diversification is the only real free lunch in investing. But I think it's actually still true. I think a lot of portfolios are under-diversified. And that's just free. Almost everything else in life is expensive. And One of the other themes that the research at AQR has sort of often come back to is this idea of demystifying what all the other active guys are up to. So are the hedge fund strategies, why Warren Buffett's performance is so good, all of those kinds of things. What has surprised you when you've looked at other active strategies? What have you found surprising about how much of them can be explained by some of the things that you look at? Well, you mentioned the Warren Buffett one. I was shocked. Three of my colleagues, Andrea Frazzini, Lasse Peterson, and David Kabiller, wrote that paper. So I'm talking about their work. I still look at that and I'm like, wow, I thought they'd get some interesting stuff. I didn't think that you could explain that much of Warren Buffett's success with the fact that he likes low-risk stocks, cheap stocks, profitable stocks. That is both a good and safe portfolio. And then he levers that, which is rather well-known, but you apply those and you get to most of Warren Buffett's returns. Now, that by no means diminishes the achievement, and he was aggressive in the risk he took, of a reasonably good sharp ratio strategy over the long haul. And a big part of his success also, and I I don't mean to harp on the Warren Buffett, I just think it's interesting, was they looked for and found no signs that he ever backed off. He had some horrible relative and absolute drawdowns relative to the market or just looking at the portfolio itself. And there's no evidence he, he ever said, yeah, I probably should cut this off so I don't lose anymore. He believed in what he was doing. And, and only one person seemed to do it this successfully. So I should say very little of this work in demystifying other strategies makes us popular. Maybe hopefully with clients and with the general public, but not, not with the people we're demystifying. I'd also add that we regularly demystify our own strategies. Again, we don't tell everything, but, but we do say that most of this is not magic. Here's what we're, we're doing. So we're not immune to our own investigatory powers. 
might not have made you unpopular with uh, with Warren Buffett. I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever met him, um, had a chat about I, value? I've never met him. I've thought occasionally, you know, he does this annual like bid on a lunch with Warren Buffett. I've thought about bidding on, on that just so I can find out what he really thinks of this paper. I This could be totally false, but I have heard he doesn't really like it. And I am guessing that it's not something he's like read and torn apart it's more like someone said to him, these guys say you're a quant, which is not at all what we're saying. We're saying that he's correlated with quant strategies and his philosophy is very similar to the things that drive things we believe in. But by no means do we think he's a quant. But I think if he even remembers us, which is highly doubtful, I'm going to guess you're going to get a, a dismissive kind of shrug. I like your summary of it in the book that you published, which was Warren Buffett figured out a lot of stuff we figured out a long time before, yeah. before we did. Which, and, you, uh, and you get huge credit for that, right? Yeah, yeah. So you'll both notice that we touched on value there at the end, which we'll come back to very shortly because value tends to get really beaten up in bubbly times like the ones we lived through in in 2020 and 2021. But it does very well on the back end of those periods like now. And it's a big reason why AQR struggled a few years ago and its recovery is a huge part of their success again now. It was also hugely fun to talk to him about Warren Buffett, who is a classic, iconic value investor. And Mr. Buffett actually has a sort of path that echoes Cliffs in many ways. He studied under Benjamin Graham, who was the father of value investing, and then he went and put Mr. Graham theories in practice. Cliff similarly sort of studied under Gene Farmer, who came up with this sort of factor model and, and then went and put that into practice himself. Mike, Tom, what are your takeaways so far? What did you find interesting? I find this sort of world that has one foot in academia and and one foot in the reality of investing and financial markets really, really interesting because I certainly often think of them as two different worlds. And this is an area where they're so closely intertwined. Farmer won the Nobel Prize with Robert Schiller. One of those fun ones where the prize is split by people who have, quite frankly, a sort of fundamental disagreement on the area that they've studied (laughs) and, and published in. Cliff Asnes being so close with Farmer, having him as a mentor means he's coming at an investment career with this really strong prior towards market efficiency, with Farmer being pretty much the sort of head honcho when it comes to efficient markets theory. And that makes his thoughts on how these things develop and ultimately the performance of the company really, really interesting to me. The discussion on diversification was was really fascinating to me. It's it's so true that this is really one of those very first lessons you get in a finance class that a diversified portfolio can deliver the same returns with lower risk. But so many people still ignore that, including in how they think about allocating across asset classes like equities and bonds. Crypto, though, I'm not sure you'll ever find that in a portfolio of mine. But Alice, I know you've written a piece on regulating that crazy market in this week's paper, which I'm very much looking forward to reading. Yes, it seems like regulators have really got their teeth into crypto now. I'm really looking forward to reading a piece that is not at all to do with finance, written by one of my American colleagues this week, which is about drag shows and the culture wars. Drag queens have become this lightning rod for political furore in America. Now, if you find yourself a little bit more interested in fiscal drag than drag queens, we also have a lot of coverage about inflation (laughs) in the paper this week. To read those pieces and the rest of the coverage, you need to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer, and that link is in the notes to this episode.
After the break, we'll hear about some of the more difficult years when AQR got creamed, as Cliff put it, and hear what makes him think about throwing in the towel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Alice, where do we pick up next? We are picking up with me asking about some of the more difficult years that AQR had. So from about 2018, their performance was not so good. And I began by asking him about that more difficult time. Now, if you look at the performance of quantitative strategies, especially value, which we've sort of talked about, performance was pretty rough for a few years from 2018 and then paid off. Very generously put. (laughs) And then it has paid off a lot in late 21 and 22. And you called this a super bubble in growth stocks like tech. And that seems to have deflated now. How far through that deflation are we? Or how much more is there for value to do well, do you think? In 99, 2000, you know, I've been doing this a while. That was my first valuation bubble. It was the tech bubble of the dot-com era and whatnot. And we built something. I think we wrote the first piece saying, you know, everyone talks about value, but you can measure this. You can actually look at the spread. You don't just have to sort stocks. Like a Fama French work, sort stocks on a valuation measure. And their classic thing that you get on Ken French's website is what if you went long the cheap and short the expensive? But there's generally, in most of the academic work, not a notion of how cheap and how expensive. There will always be differences, but sometimes they're a little bit different, and sometimes they're massively different. The tech bubble, we built this measure, and it was by far, going back about, I don't know, 40, 50 years, the most extreme we had ever seen. It gave us a lot of staying power. A value, it was a very similar period to 18 through 20, where value was really getting creamed. By the end of 2019, we saw it approaching the tech bubble. We checked it a million ways. I must have written 15 blogs saying, all right, we tried to poke holes in our own theory another way. Is it just the tech stocks, for instance? They're part of it, but we would eliminate all the tech stocks and find very similar results. So we got very convinced that the world was a little crazy and the thing was to stick with it. I eventually get back to your questions. Last number I looked at, now value's up a little so far this year, so maybe a little lower than this. But as of the end of last year, that spread between cheap and expensive was still 94th percentile versus history. I don't mean to be overprecise, but I remember that number. If you look at a graph, it's COVID peak, but it's not very below its tech bubble peak. And we think this is a very robust, very battle-tested measure of valuation. And when you're at maximum crazy, one big year doesn't fix it. And I think people feel like it should. There's a natural instinct like, well, it must be over now. None of this means that value or, or, or even a more broad set of quantitative factors won't have a terrible quarter next quarter. 
But it does mean, I think, on kind of a few-year horizon, we still have a lot of this to make back, which will be nice because most of the things we do are now uh, healthily positive, made back the painful period. Not everything. There's still some places we have a little to go. And if we're right about this, it's going to be, again, just like 2000 through 2002, a comeback that's bigger than the losses, a nice round trip, just one that takes a few years off the end of your life. I guess you sort of touched upon this a bit when you started out your career. There's the sort of tech bubble that we've just lived through. And I guess there was also the sort of quant quake in, yeah. in 2007. As you say, they're sort of pretty harrowing times that sort of shave years off your life. Have, have any of them been so bad that you consider sort of throwing in the towel? Or, or how have you coped through those periods? Every freaking day. Okay, there's a little truth to that. But I would say this. I am a questioner about these things. I will have crises of confidence where I will wake up in the middle of the night and say, maybe we've just gotten lucky over the last 20-something years or counting back tests. Maybe they're all data mined. And even though we have great intellectual arguments why that's not true, I'm not above having those. I think someone who doesn't have those occasionally is kind of either dishonest or a little crazy, to be blunt. Mine, in all honesty, have not particularly coincided with very bad periods. Because the ones we've seen, we've really felt we understood what was happening. That didn't mean we could predict when it's going to turn around. We didn't enjoy what was going on. But, you know, if I know why and I know the long-term results, there could be a question of survival. There could be a question of literally can you stick with this. We were never faced with that. We had a tough period. You know, we don't lever so much that it was a very dangerous period to the whole portfolio. So no, those didn't cause particular uh, crises of confidence. But again, I'm not saying I would abandon something if I didn't understand what was happening. I still might accept the long-term evidence. I might argue, you know, uh, crazy stuff happens. But it would give me a lot more pause and send me to the drawing board a lot more if we were having a really tough period and had no idea why. If it's really clear why and that reason doesn't change your thesis – then, you know, shame on you if you stop doing it. Just to sort of pick back up on the the everything bubble rather than the tech bubble, you wrote in 2014 that uh, one of your pet peeves was that people use the term bubble too often. And you clearly defined it as a price that no reasonable future could justify and suggest that that they were reasonably rare. But two in 20 years doesn't feel that rare anymore. Does that indicate that maybe markets aren't quite as efficient or people are more behaviorally mad than you thought? It certainly might. If you try to be perfectly consistent through time, that means you've never evolved any thought you've ever had. I've never been a believer in perfect market efficiency, nor is anyone for that matter. The question is how efficient are they and is it a good approximation to where we are? And there, I have definitely moved in my career. If Gene thinks markets are mostly efficient and want to pick a counterpart to him, Dick Thaler, behavioral economist also at Chicago, thinks markets are pretty darn inefficient. I still love Gene. He's still my mentor and he's still my guy. But I was probably 75-25 Gene on my belief on this. And now I'm probably 75-25 Thaler on it. And these episodes, a long sustained period like 99-2000 and then again like 18 through 20, yeah, that's moved me on the markets are less efficient than I would have thought 25 years ago. Now, I want to be careful. That doesn't mean that they are not the best way mankind has for allocating capital. I'll take markets over of a committee of 20 geniuses anytime. I think markets are extremely efficient long-term, 
but my view that they're always efficient short term. I think I'd still write that article, but I'd probably rejigger the language a little bit. Do you think some of the more behavioral dynamics or bubbly nature of the last few years can be explained, or sort of how much can be explained by the jump in retail participation and individual investors? You tend to see that around speculative bubbles, but is this different in some way? No, I think you saw something very similar. Again, in my only real similar example, 99-2000, electronic trading was new, but it was all the rage. And the internet, obviously, it was a little self-referential because the bubble was in a large part about the internet. But there were great arguments that individual investors get all the information that professional investors can get, and they get it instantly. How can this be inefficient? And I think there's a big disconnect there because getting information and getting it quickly does not mean processing it well. In fact, it can create an illusion of safety, an illusion of control, an illusion of knowledge And I think we saw that in 99, 2000, and I think we saw that now or in the last few years. I think we saw it bigger this time. I think the retail participation was larger, and retail doesn't always get it wrong. But at the really big, crazy times, they seem to go all in. Institutions can do it too. But I think you're right. That retail phenomena has repeated a few times. In 99, 2000, we didn't have the concept of like meme stocks and whatnot. So social media wasn't a big thing at that time. I tend to think things like social media make the market less, not more efficient. Everyone lives in their own bubble and shares confirming stories. I won't get political, but it's much like what it does to our politics. The analogy is strong. People don't hear counter opinions. They hear their own. And in politics, that can lead to some dangerous craziness. And in markets, it can lead to some really weird price action. Okay, a sharp turn now, just a ask you of what you do all day. (laughs) My perception of a lot of quant investing methods... I do podcasts. (laughs) My perception of a lot of the sort of quant methods is that, you know, a lot of it is automated. You've coded all of these algorithms to pick stocks or assets on the basis of all the things we've talked about. And execution of trades is also automated. So obviously you're a human being and you wrote all of those those things or or some of those things. And um, how much of how AQR does is automated and how much is still human? A lot of both. We do automate things as much as we can. We do follow our models on a daily basis. And, but there are people implementing them and people checking them. There are firms that are more fully automated than we are. Uh, if you're a, we're not a high-frequency trader. If you're a true high-frequency trader, you can't have a human look at every trade. It just doesn't work. We essentially do. Not to see if we like the trade, but to make sure the whole process is working. Anyone who tells you there aren't errors that pop up, that there aren't exceptions, you get an, you know, an exception report says this may be off. Someone checks that out. So it's a little – it's not a high-touch process, but it's higher touch than people might think. I spend a lot of my day doing management. You run a 500-some-odd-person firm. Somebody's thrilled and somebody's upset every day, so I, I get into that. Uh, research, I'm still very involved with that. That's my first love, so any – Thing. And we're always, this sounds very marketing, I know, uh, but we're always trying to make our process better. We don't make it massively better every day. That's ridiculous, but we always have things in the works that we're testing. Most of them fail because that's the nature of research, but I'm very involved with that process. The human side of portfolio management, though, if I could take your question one slightly different direction. When I started, again, this is late 80s, I'm having a lot of age issues <laughs> lately where I I say these numbers in my stories and I'm like, really? But if you ask me what drives long-term success of an investment manager, 
I would have probably given you with some implied arrogance because I would have implied that I was one of these, that um, being cl- more clever uh, than the market or other managers or whatnot drove all of success. I now think that's about half of it. I think the other half is sticking to what you do when it's hard to stick with it. You can turn any process, no matter how good, into a bad one if you abandon it at the wrong time or get excited about it and triple your investment at the wrong time. So that human side, and even for quants, that human element that maybe you need experience, maybe you need to survive your own mistakes to get that experience, I think that is a much bigger part of successful management than I would have thought 25, 30 years ago. Cliff Asnes, thank you so much for joining my talks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. This was great. I enjoyed it. So, Mike, Tom, did you enjoy the interview? Absolutely. And I'm really glad to have heard Cliff talk a little bit about his waning faith in market efficiency and how that's changed over time. Hearing him say he's sort of 75% Thaler, 25% farmer these days is really, really punchy. Coming from someone who I think of personally as one of the biggest advocates for market efficiency in the financial world. And it sort of makes you think like, If someone who was literally Eugene Farmer's PhD student doesn't really believe in EMH anymore, then like who is left? Who is left on that side of the argument? I was actually very impressed by his humility. Uh, To be frank, it's not a characteristic that hedge fund bosses are exactly known for, but it sounds like a, a healthy dose of perspective has served Cliff well over the long run. It also struck me that this is a person who really loves what he does. The fact that he's still very much engaged in the research after all this time is, I think, very telling. On the market efficiency thing, he does mention that Gene Farmer is not a 100% believer. He says that he doesn't think they're sort of entirely efficient all of the time. But it was interesting to hear how if Cliff started off quite close to Farmer, he has shifted over his career towards thinking that there, there sort of might be a little more inefficiency or madness than he once did. And on Tom's point, he's been doing this for 25 years, and you would think that he might have sort of run out of energy for the enthusiasm with which he sort of has these debates about efficiency and factors of which stuff he thinks will outperform. He's an extremely energetic person in person, and he seems still still sort of fascinated and gripped by these questions. So uh, maybe he has uh, another 25 years or so in him. But I really enjoyed going to speak with him and particularly seeing him in his natural habitat in his office, which, as I mentioned, the top is sort of decked out with all of these awards for his research papers, but also a sort of truly enormous number of pictures of his kids. The impression I got was of someone who seemed very proud of all of their life's work, both in academia and finance, but also at home. And the thing people might think about when they think about sort of qualitative investors is that they're sort of very cold and, and cool and dispassionate. And uh, Cliff Asnes is a, is a real rebuttal to that idea. He does also have this snoopy punching bag in the corner of his office, which I believe that he takes out his frustration on at times when things aren't going his way. So yeah, it was great to meet him. Shall we pivot now to our stats of the week? I need to see whether I can put one of those Snoopy bags on expenses. My statistic of the week, and I know Alice is going to be annoyed at me putting it in a weak currency, but it's 566 trillion yen. 
That is the latest data on the amount of Japanese government bonds owned by the Bank of Japan. It's a big number, regardless of whether it's in yen or not. It's slightly over 100% of Japanese GDP. They've had to buy an enormous amount recently defending the bank's yield curve control policies. Yeah, big deal for the incoming BOJ governor as well. Keeping the discussion in Japan, my stat of the week is $5.5 billion in this case, which is SoftBank's investment losses in the most recent quarter. Masayoshi's son didn't even turn up to the company's most recent earnings call last week. Last November, he said he was going to spend all his time working on growing Arm, which is the semiconductor company that SoftBank owns. So presumably he was uh, off doing that. But it does seem like Masayoshi's days of writing gigantic checks may be behind him, at least for now. As are his days of showing up to get flogged by analysts on investor calls. Uh, you know, uh, maybe he is busy growing arm, but uh, you think he could spare 90 minutes or whatever. My stat of the week this week is 230%, which is the percent by which men are more likely than women to get their news from Reddit, the uh, social media site. There's a sort of pair stat that goes with this, which is that... Uh, women are 60% more likely than men to rely on TikTok as a source of news. And reading these together was quite depressing because I'd rather people got their news from neither Reddit or TikTok. But those are the ways the genders skew with preference to those two sites. Now, if only there was a, a very reasonably priced source of global news and analysis that you could go for and you wouldn't have to go to Reddit or TikTok. It's just a shame that no such thing exists. And with that, I want to thank Cliff Astes. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.